0: Even before we start this morning, let me just give you kind of a lay of the land for the next few weeks so you kind of know what's coming. Uh, Today we'll be wrapping up Ephesians chapter 1. The next couple weeks, Pastor Ryan is going to be preaching. And then after that, we'll be into the month of December. We'll kind of do a few Christmas things as we head into the Christmas season. I know it's hard to believe that it's already here. And then, Lord willing, uh, the last Sunday in December, December 29th, Uh, We will come back to the book of Ephesians and then go into 2020 in in the book of Ephesians. So that's kind of the goal. Uh, We'll see how the next uh, few weeks go. The story is told of John D. Rockefeller, the world's first billionaire, who it is said that for many years, John lived on crackers and milk Because of stomach troubles caused by worrying about his wealth. He rarely had a good night's sleep, and guards stood constantly at his door. He was wealthy, but he was miserable. When he began to share his wealth with others in great charitable endeavors, his health improved considerably, and he ended up living to be a very old man. It's an interesting story because a man of extreme wealth and because he was afraid to use it, it ended up eating him from the inside out. But when he began utilizing that great wealth that he had, his life changed unbelievably. I have a hunch that if the Apostle Paul were to come here today and be telling us this letter to the Ephesians, that he would want to tell you the same thing, that you have incredible wealth in jesus christ you have untold power in jesus christ and so instead of cowering off in some corner somewhere being unsure of your salvation being unsure how to walk being unsure in your battle against sin paul would tell us you need to tap into that power that's already yours you need to walk in it you need to go and so that's what i want us to see this morning as we finish out Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 15 down to verse 23 of this chapter, as we've said, is one long, continuous prayer. And it's, it's, it's Paul's desire, it's, it's his prayer for the Ephesians and for us that we would come to understand the full implications of our salvation, the impact of the good news on the uh, believer and sometimes I think when you and I use the word good news when you and I use the word gospel I think that our understanding of the gospel is oftentimes stunted if you go ask the average Christian what is the gospel you'll likely hear an answer like this well it's Matthew Mark Luke and John. And while we would say, well, those are the gospels, those are the accounts of Jesus while he was on earth, that's really not what we mean by the gospel. If you ask others, what is the gospel, you might hear an answer like this. Well, the gospel is Jesus died for your sins on a cross, now repent and believe. And while we would say, yes, those are definitely elements of the gospel, and those are contained in the gospel, that answer is really too truncated. The gospel is far broader and far greater are the implications than just an historical event and just something to believe in. The gospel really is the full redemptive story of God. It begins in eternity past inside the council of the Trinity as God the Father, Son, and Spirit develop this plan and unfold this plan that no human would have ever thought of. No human could have dreamt that up. And that plan plays itself out in history. It begins with Adam and Eve, of course. They're they're in the garden. They're created to be image bearers of God. But it continues because Adam and Eve sin, they disobey the commands of God. And so humans are left destitute, they're under condemnation. And so throughout the Old Testament, as you read uh, the prophets and the law of Moses, you hear this drumbeat of the Messiah's coming, the, the Messiah's coming. And then eventually when you get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus appears on the scene, the the Son of God. He he comes, and and he fulfills the law. He he goes to a cross. He dies, and he raises again on the third day. He ascends back to the Father, and he sends the Holy Spirit who begins resurrecting dead souls and, and giving them life. But the gospel doesn't end there. It doesn't end with you and I, Repenting of our sin and and by faith believing in Jesus Christ. That's just the start. Now the gospel says, because you are a new creation in Christ Jesus, you have been given some gifts. You've been given gifts to know how to walk like Jesus Christ. And so now you begin living out the life of Jesus Christ. And that's the content of Paul's prayer in verses 15 to 23. He says, I want you to know... The gifts that you have being in partnership with Christ, being in Christ. So he says, I, I just pray. You know, Paul says, I, I pray that the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened so that you know what you possess. And that knowledge of what we possess begins changing us and growing us and we become like Jesus to the praise of the glory of God. So, I want to read our text this morning, and I want to make sure that we understand what is ours in Christ, this powerful uh, possession we have in Him. So, follow along as I read. I'm going to start at verse 15, read down through the end of the, the chapter. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all if you were here last week you'll recall that we said there are three things verses 18 and 19 that paul wants us to know three things he wants us to know the hope to which he has called us He wants us to know the riches of his glorious inheritance. And thirdly, he wants us to know the immeasurable greatness of his power. Those are three fantastic gifts given to you when you believe in Jesus Christ. The first one is a hope. Our hope is not flimsy. Our our hope is a settled confidence in what Christ has accomplished on our behalf at the cross, and in our salvation. We don't have to hope that we're saved in a flimsy kind of way. We can know that we're saved. It's an unshakable reality. Second, Paul says, we have this settled confidence of what awaits us one day in heaven when we receive the riches of his glorious inheritance. Okay, so we have we don't have this guarded optimism about what might come, but we have this joyful anticipation of what waits us in heaven. People can have all kinds of wonderful things here, but friends, I'll just tell you, this age pales in comparison to what's awaiting you in heaven, okay? So we have a settled hope in our salvation. That's, that's a, a past reality. And we have this joyful anticipation of our glorious inheritance in heaven. that That's a future reality. What do we have for right now? What, what's for this present time? Is there anything for this present time? Is there anything that I need right now that God is saying, I'm going to give this to you to help you now? So you have something in the past, you have something coming in the future. But what about now? Let me maybe give some examples and... We'll frame this a bit. Maybe you're like me, and you look at your life and you think, you know what? There are some days when I really struggle with my tongue. My words can be biting. They can be cruel sometimes. They can be sarcastic. They can be cutting. And James tells us that our tr- our tongues are a restless evil full of deadly poison, set on fire by hell. And if I'm honest, uh, there are times when I say, you know what, I've used my tongue today to treat my wife like hell. Have you ever been there with me? Do you ever wonder, what what, what do I need right now to help me with that? Or maybe you're like me, Uh, And there are times when you struggle uh, to subdue your anger. (laughs) You yell at the kids. You yell at the dog. You kick the cabinet. You pound your fist on the countertop. Is there anything that can help you right now? I mean, it's one thing to think about my past, what Christ has done for me. It's one thing to anticipate the future. But what about right now? Because I kind of need something to deal with this right now. Maybe you're there with me. Or maybe you're wondering, is there any power that can tame my lust? I I, I go all day long and, and these lustful thoughts just keep coming. I hate it, but it's there. Is there anything that can conquer the sin that continues to show up and I just can't seem to get hold of it can I really believe that there is a God who saved me and has a future for me when I look at my life now and I keep seeing these, these habits and, and these sins that I know are wrong and I, I just can't seem to get my arms around him have you ever been there it is the present aspect of the good news of the gospel that helps us right there it it doesn't just point to our past it doesn't just point to our future but the good news the gospel of our salvation enables us in the present it is good news because it is all-encompassing it goes through my whole life look again at verse 19 i want you to see this Paul says, the third thing that I want you to know is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. And again, if you were with us the last time, you know that Paul is just stumbling all over himself there as he just comes up with these different synonyms for power. He just can't, Come up with enough words to describe the power of God, and he he uses four different words in that one little sentence. He uses the word "dynamis." We get our word "dynamite" from that. He he uses the word "energia," which we get our word "energy" as an operative power. He uses the word "kratos," which is a very uh, rare word in the New Testament, it's this ultimate power kind of word, and he uses this word "ixus," which is like this endowed this this force of God, this power that Paul is trying to describe in verse 19 is an overwhelming power. Now, I'm going to try to help us understand the magnitude of this power, but I'm going to be honest with you. This kind of power, it really escapes my understanding. You guys are smarter than me, so you'll get it quicker than me. But this, this really... Blows my mind. Paul, in his effort to help us understand what this power is like, gives us now three expressions of that power. Three things that this power of God has done. First, look at verse 20. He says, This power of God raised Jesus from the dead, And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. In the Old Testament, people measured God's power by pointing either to his creation or by pointing to the exodus of the people of Israel out of Egypt. Those are two recurring themes throughout the Old Testament when people wanted to describe the power of God. When you arrive in the New Testament, we measure the power of God by the miracle of Christ's resurrection and ascension. We say, God raised Jesus from the dead by his power. Here's what I I think we miss. I I think we glance over that. When you and I hear that statement, God raised Jesus from the dead, do you ever stop for a moment and just contemplate the power necessary to make that happen? What, What kind of power must a being possess in order to make a dead person come to life? How does that work? I I heard a sermon on this uh, several years ago, and and this has just rattled in my brain ever since, the questions that were posed uh, by the preacher that day. Do you have any idea the level of authority and majesty and power and dominion it took to make dead Jesus come alive. Do you have any idea of the degree of that kind of power? What kind of words would you use to to describe the measurement of that kind of power How would you talk about that kind of power? It sounds big. It it is big. Do we know the the degree of that kind of power? No, we don't. We, We don't have terms to describe measuring that kind of power. How do you quantify the power of a spiritual being, with, with no physical hands, uh, no physical feet, no no physical dimensions, moving something that is dead and making it a, alive. What is that? How, how do you how do you how do you describe that? How how do you measure? Is it is is that a force? Is is that Kilowatts of electricity? Is is that pounds of pressure? Is that torque of rotation? How does a spiritual being create something out of nothing? How strong does this have to be to make That happened. How do you measure that? How do you get to where Paul seems to be when he is in amazement of that kind of power? We can't. We don't have human terms to describe that type of power. No matter what we use to try to quantify that, to try to... Uh, make an analogy to explain that everything we have at our disposal to describe that kind of power uh, falls short. We've never encountered that kind of authority and dominion and glory and majesty and power like that. Nothing we have compares to that. That's why Paul calls it immeasurable. And yet, Paul says this immeasurable power of his greatness worked and acted upon Jesus who was lying dead in a grave and in an instant, Jesus woke. How does that work? Not only did that power... Raise Jesus from the dead, but Paul says it brought Jesus into the heavenly places and back to the the Father's side. Where is that? Is that a hundred miles in space? Is that a billion miles in space? Is it, is that is that somewhere outside the the Milky Way? Is that? somewhere outside our our universe? Where did Jesus go? And what kind of power does it take to bring him to wherever he is? I was at the Kennedy Space Center uh, just two weeks ago. NASA's talking about trying to get men uh, to the planet Mars uh, by 2050. And the effort... And the money and the intellect and the time that it takes to calculate what it would take to land a human on a rock that we can see is unbelievable. So what kind of power does it take to lift someone off of the face of planet Earth and escalate that person into the very presence of Spirit God somewhere out there. How do you describe that? These are the kinds of things that rattle inside my head. (laughs) These are the kinds of things that that's power. That's his power. There is no rule. There is no authority. There is no power or dominion in any earthly realm or in any spiritual realm that stands above that kind of power. And in Philippians 2, we read, Therefore God has highly exalted Him, that's Jesus, and bestowed on Him that a name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is Lord. He's, he's the supreme one. He is the master. He's the true commander-in-chief. He is the majestic one. There is no one above him. There is no one who tells him what to do. There is no one who can thwart his power. Jesus says of himself in Matthew 28, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And according to Paul, in verses 20 and 21, that power not only exists in this age, but exists in the age to come. It is forever. It is eternal. It is unfailing. It is unchanging. It is fixed. It is un- invariable. That is power. And that's just the first expression that Paul gives us. There's two more. Paul says in verse 22, this power of God Put all things under the feet of Jesus. That's pretty amazing in and of itself. If you go back to the creation account in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, God said to the first Adam in Genesis 1.28, Be fruitful and multiply. He said, fill the earth and, what? Subdue it, have dominion, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Adam was given the headship over creation. But you know what? He lost that headship, didn't he? Because he sinned, he disobeyed. And and the first Adam ended up subjecting all of creation to futility, Romans 8 tells us. But the second Adam, Jesus, through his obedience to the Father, was given that dominion over all things, and all things then were placed under his feet. And we know that when that Jesus returns, he will be given final and ultimate power to conquer all things that refuse to submit to his authority. By his great and awesome power, when Jesus returns, he will take Satan, He will take all the demonic forces. He will take all of the followers of Satan and he will cast them into outer darkness where they will never again assault Jesus Christ or assault his church. We have never seen that kind of power. We can read about it in the book of Revelation. We can read about the futile attempts of of humans even on the final pages of Scripture where they they try to uh, come alongside of Satan and attack and and conquer the Savior in the last day. But to describe the enormity of the power of Jesus to defeat all of those supernatural forces fails us. How do you describe that kind of power? So Paul says, this power of God raised Jesus from the dead, brought him to the right hand of the Father, and this power of God subdues, puts all of creation under the feet, under the authority of Jesus Christ. And thirdly, if you look at verse 22, Paul says, this power gave Jesus as Head over all things to the church. The power of God placed Jesus Christ as head over the church. The head of our church is not Pastor Sean. The head of our church is not Conservative Mennonite Conference. The head of our church is not a pope. It's not an ecclesiastical body. The head of our church and the head of every true church is Jesus, he's the head, he has authority, we are the body, and the, and the body moves at the command of the head, now think about this for a moment, you have this head, Jesus, who has all of the authority, all of the dominion, all of the power, all of the rule, and when he commands the body to move, he ends up doing something else, he ends up equipping it to do what he tells it to do. It's the power of Jesus, the head of the church, that flows down into the body such that the body is energized to fulfill the commands of the head. The Bible says that we are in Christ and Christ is in us. It's his power, his headship, that ends up equipping us to do what he's called us to do. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, word it like this. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We could say it like this. God's purpose is to work within us to make us mature and to grow us up to be like Jesus Christ. Three aspects of the power of God. Raised Jesus from the dead, seated him at the right hand of the Father, placed all things under his feet, and gave him as head over the church. Now, let's bring that full circle and see how Paul's prayer for us helps us to understand and to put into practice all of these things, okay? Remember, Paul wanted us to know three things what is the hope to which he's called us, God has called us, that's our past salvation. He wanted us to know the riches of his glorious inheritance, that's our future reward. And he wants us to know the power of God working within us, that is our present help. And he's tried to describe this power in, in some fashion so that we can begin to understand it by giving us three expressions of that power, God raising Jesus from the dead, putting all things under the feet of Jesus, and giving Jesus as head over the church. So what do we do with that? How does that help us? Well, let's go back to the husband with the cruel and cutting tongue. He needs something, doesn't he? He needs something working in his life to enable him to subdue his tongue. Is God's power able to subdue his tongue so that Ephesians 4.29 no corrupting talk comes out of it but only such as building up for good as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear can god's power do that yeah it can let's go back to the husband or the wife with with the anger problem he or she needs something right Is there anything that can help me when I get so angry? Is there anything that can help me in the here and now to to subdue my anger and bring it under submission to Jesus Christ? Well, Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Apparently, God's power is able to help me subdue my anger. Let's go back to the the lust problem. Is God's power sufficient to enable me to battle against the illicit cravings of my heart? Well, listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 5. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be even named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. You mean... God's power is able to turn me from sexual immorality to thankfulness? Yeah, it is. How do I do that? How how do I tap into that enormous reservoir of power which is mine in Jesus Christ? Well, it begins by repenting of of my sinful heart's desire and it begins meaning I walk by the power of the Holy Spirit as a child of light, remembering that if Christ is within me, I can change. I don't have to live like that anymore. His power is resident in my life. I remind myself of all that Paul says is mine in Christ my hope, my power, and my inheritance. And by faith, I walk in that. I I, I begin to put that into practice. I, I begin believing that what he says is mine is mine, and I begin doing it. If there is ever an example out of Scripture of an individual who did this, it's none other than the Apostle Peter you go read about Peter, the first time you meet Peter in the Bible, he kind of comes off like a bumbling knucklehead. He's one of these guys that he, he, he says things that are dumb, he does things that are dumb. Peter goes from one moment saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, to the next moment being rebuked by Jesus saying, Satan, get behind me. That's that's Peter, this kind of, he's all over the map. And in the ultimate act of hypocrisy and sinfulness, he denies even knowing Jesus Christ. In intimidation and in fear, Peter runs away from our Lord like a coward. But when you get to Peter in Acts chapter 2, that same man stands up and he preaches a sermon that cuts to the heart of those who are listening. There are thousands, the Bible says, of people who are saved that day when Peter stands up and boldly proclaims the name of Jesus. What made the difference? How did he go from this to that? It was none other than the power of God moving in the life of Peter. And Peter says, that exact power is yours. Peter wrote about it to you. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Paul says, His divine power, there it is, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of this divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Are you the bumbling knucklehead? You don't have to be. Because the power of Jesus is in you. God is up to something amazing in your life, and he's simply asking you to understand the power that you already have. It's already there. His divine power is at work in you, Peter says. You are a partaker of that same power. And so by faith, you stand up and you begin to walk in that. And you might falter. You you might be a little shaky. You might even fall down. Trust me, Peter knows what that's like because even after Acts 2, Peter continued to shake and falter at times. But this God who called you, this God who saved you, this God who raised Jesus from the dead is not going to give up on you. His power is working in you to accomplish his purpose for you, and that is to make you into the image of Jesus Christ. So keep walking. Keep going. Don't stop now. His power is yours. That's what Paul wants us to know in his prayer for us. Stand with me and let's pray thanking God for that power and asking him to help us to walk in that kind of power. God, how do we begin to describe your power? There is no human mechanism. There's no human machine. There's no human intellect that can harness that kind of power, that can somehow um, imitate emulate that kind of power there, there there's nothing and god i suppose you probably look down on us and with great pleasure you see us landing spaceships on the moon and the Mar- and mars and yet it is a fraction it's not even on the scale of your tremendous power And that power god you would give to us what The power that raised Jesus from the dead, that that put all things under his feet, that put him as head, that power is resident in us to root out sin. What? Father, what a gift. What an amazing truth. Why do we think that we can't do it? Well, we, we can't on our own, but by your help we can. Father, I pray that as professing Christians, as, as believers, that we wouldn't just be content with sin that pops up in our lives, that we wouldn't somehow excuse it as it's okay or that's how dad was or wh- whatever excuse we use, but that we would tap into that power by faith, believe what's actually there and begin hacking away at the roots of that sin. That we would give you the glory as we see your power actually enabling us to walk like Jesus walked. And that all that glory would come back to you and we would say, not I, but you, God, are doing this. Yes, I'm cooperating with that. Yes, I'm I'm doing my part to put that into practice. But God, it is you at work within me. Father, I pray that you would help us to be a body of believers that so loves you, so depends on you we walk in obedience to you. Thank you for this great and awesome gift. In Jesus' name.